Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. If nothing changes about my life, where would I end up in five years time and 10 years time? And how would that impact me? And how would that feel? If these are my values and I, I head in this direction that's out of alignment with my values, how far would I have to go down that road for it to become a crisis? This is done in classic storytelling to get people engaged in a movie or in a good book. They do this at the beginning of every story. They say, here's this person who cares about these things. Right now they have this challenge. And oh, by the way, if they keep going in this direction, they're going to be kicked out of where they live and they'll never see their children again. Like that's sort of a basic setup for a story. We think, oh no, what are they going to do about it? So if you do that for your own life, you can suddenly get really focused on why you care about changing things to stay in alignment with your values. And then you can dream up that bigger future, which people are maybe more familiar with of where would I love to be, but put it in alignment with your values. And then the, the next part is to build the journey. And the journey, um, people have heard this so many times, but I always say to people, the journey is the point. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Richard, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your book by way of your publicist. Um, you have a new book out called Lift Your Impact, which I think is very relevant to everybody who's listening to this, regardless of what they're doing. But before we get into the content of the book, I wanted to start by asking you where in the world were you born and raised and what impact did that end up having on what you've ended up doing in your life and career? Yeah, interesting. So I was born in Bromley, Kent, uh, which is in the south of England. Um, I'm trying to think how far, about an hour south of London, something like that. And I, I lived there for the first four and a half years of my life. And I, I don't remember much about it other than I used to be really happy going to school. Uh, I had uh, a little group of friends and uh, just sort of was skipping to school, having a, a very um, fun life. And then I think the, the impactful part that happened for me is that I, we moved house uh, just before my fifth birthday, where I then moved to Buckinghamshire, which is sort of northwest of London. And uh, I then started going to a new school. Everything was fresh. Um, I, you know, I didn't know 
anybody in the area. And I, that was sort of the significant part of, uh, for me for growing up. I was in an area then that really prized education. So, uh, in Buckinghamshire, it's one of the parts of uh, England where they have very good schools. You have to sit exams to get into specific schools. And that was part of the reason that my parents had moved us there. And so there was a, a big focus on doing well in education. And so I think that that then, um, you know, took me down quite an academic route, uh, if you like. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was probably where it, it impacted me uh, the most. Yeah. So for your parents and, and in general in England, what is the default narrative about education? Uh, that's a good question. I think there's, there's a lot of different opinions. Uh, on this. So some opinions on education are that everyone should go to the same school. So it, there shouldn't be, so, so there are what we call comprehensive schools, which is uh, where most people go. They go from sort of junior school up to high school and it's called a comprehensive. It means everybody can can go. And then in certain parts of the country, you have what's called a, a grammar school, uh, usually, or a high school, um, if it's sort of uh, the, the female equivalent for all girls or all boys. And uh, there's, you know, some people say, well, that's a good thing because you should take, you know, students who are more academically minded and put them all together and take other people who are less uh, academic and have them together so that you've got people's, you know, focusing on whatever is their, their passion. Um, so I don't know what the right answer is on that, but that's probably where the debate goes. Uh, on education. I do not certainly know that if you go back a few years, uh, we had Tony Blair as our prime minister and his most famous speech probably is where he said that, um, his policy with leading the country was to focus on three things, which was education, education and education, because he felt that that was the way forward for, uh, you know, having a great future for our country. So I think that it is, it's something that we care about that we really want for our children is a good education. But I think what we also want here is to bring well-rounded beings into the world. And I'm certainly seeing that with my two children at the moment, that at their schools, um, it is talked about, you know, saying, you know, you're, you're going to be bright and well-educated by go- coming through a decent school anyway. Let's make you a good, well-rounded person. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for you, that was really an inflection point. And if I remember correctly, you're dyslexic, right? Uh, no, I, I'm autistic. Okay. So explain to me one, uh, how that came about, like how that was discovered and, and sort of the role of education and all of that. Uh, sure. So I, I didn't, I didn't know that until I was 44. So this was just over a year ago. I got the diagnosis. Um, but it was something that I was kind of aware of from an early stage. So, so going back to where I was saying, you know, with my education, I moved house just before my fifth uh, birthday. That was the first moment where I suddenly had an inkling that there was something about me that was different to the other kids, which I hadn't really picked up when I'd sort of grown up with everybody and they sort of known me from, you know, the day I was born. I hadn't really noticed it. But suddenly when I went to a new area, uh, I realized on that first day at school that I was trying to connect with other kids and something was off. I wasn't able to connect with them. They were happy with each other, laughing, smiling, having conversations, and I wasn't able to connect. And I started to think, is, is there something wrong with me? Is there something different about me that means that this doesn't work? This sort of conversation in, you know, in my very sort of early, uh, years of wondering. And then as I went through, uh, my education, I started to realize, okay, there, I am having a challenge here. Other people seem to be able to make friendly banter with each other. 
and build friendships and relationships. And I'm not doing as well at that. I don't know why. And then I got a book when I was uh, 16 years old. It was a friend of mine gave me a book on body language. And I started to read that and think, wow, this is incredible. This is the missing part of communication for me that I just hadn't really understood in any way. I hadn't understood how I was coming across uh, at all. And I hadn't, mm. uh, I hadn't understood what other people meant in terms of their body language. And so I then was essentially fascinated with communication and, and teaching it, but also aware that I was approaching it from a different perspective to other people because a lot of people who run training companies on communication, they tend to uh, come at it, a lot of people I've seen anyway, they come at it from a perspective of they've always been good at communicating, so they're going to try and help people be better at communicating. I come at it from the perspective of I was really struggling. So I, I was shy as a child. I'm highly introverted and I'm autistic. And so for me to try and uh, communicate well, I had to build this from the ground up to really understand what works and what doesn't. And because I've done that, I can then share those principles with people. Uh, but it's, it's much more of a built communication style, which I'm really glad to say, you know, when I go on stage, I had a very nice compliment at one point. Uh, where someone said, "Oh, you're just a natural at this, Richard." <laughs> I thought, you should have seen me. You should have seen me a few years ago. So you know, I've worked on it enough that it makes it look like it's natural. And then the great thing is, I can then teach other people what the skills are, what they're missing, what areas they might want to work on in order to have a great impact, and in order to appear natural at doing it too. Yeah. Well, you know, it's ironic. I actually had one other guest here who had been diagnosed with autism and who was a communications coach. Uh, mm. So which I thought was really interesting. But I think that the thing that strikes me most about this is this effectively was at some point your Achilles heel and you've made a career out of it. And yeah. I think Danny Shapiro in her book, Still Writing, said, you know, the blessing and the wound are always next together or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Mm. Uh, but one thing I wonder is some people would allow something like that to basically, you know, hold them back. And somehow for you, yeah. it was a catalyst for massive transformation, it seems like. Uh, yeah. what is it that distinguishes those two types of people and, um, how do the former become the latter? Do you know, I, I think that, um, from my perspective, I'm kind of grateful that I didn't, I didn't know what it was because I don't think that autism was understood that well back in the 1980s, as well as it is today from what I've understood from, from people around the topic. Uh, and there's a very different, um, there's a much wider scope of what the autism spectrum is all about uh, these days. So I was kind of grateful that I didn't know what it was. I just knew that I wanted to get better at something. And so I, so I pursued it. And I think that there's actually something great about that of just thinking, you know, don't, don't label yourself or box yourself in with something and just think, what do I care about? What am I passionate about? What, I like, what would I like to improve on? And just go for it, uh, which, which has really helped me in life in so many different ways. So as an example on this, when I was 18, everybody that I knew without fail was going to university. I went to the kind of school where university was the path. As I mentioned, you know, uh, being academic was um, very prized by my community, uh, certainly. And I decided not to. And I decided that uh, I would turn down all the offers that I had to, to, to go to university, all the different places I've been offered, uh, to go and live in India in a Tibetan monastery in the foothills of the Himalayas. And uh, people thought I was crazy. And even my friends had laid bets on how soon I was coming back. And the longest, <laughs> bet, anyone had, the longest bet that anyone had made on me was 10 days. Yeah. That was it. Now, my trip was supposed to be six months. 
they'd bet 10 days. And so I knew I have to make this at least 11 days, no matter how hard this feels, um, in order to make sure that I proved them wrong. And so, you know, I went off to India completely naive. I had no idea. I was 18. I'd never been overseas without my parents before. And I had no idea what was going to happen where I landed in Delhi. I then had to figure out how to get a train ticket, a train that would take me two days to get across the other side of the country. And then a Jeep that would take four hours to go up through the mountains with monkeys on the side of the road uh, to eventually then get to uh, like take a rickshaw that would take me to a monastery. I had no idea what I was doing. I was quite lucky, actually, in a way that I survived the trip and managed to get there. Uh, but it was the naivety in me of just thinking, I want to do this. I am really passionate about helping people. I'm passionate about communication. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to figure it out as I go. And I did. And, it, and I came back, I actually took eight months in the end because I traveled around Southeast Asia after my experience uh, of teaching English in this monastery. Yeah. And I came back thinking, you know, I, I'd really grown up from the experience because I would wake up in the morning thinking, I feel like going to Malaysia today and I just get up and go and book a flight and go and do it. And it was, it was extraordinary to have that freedom and that independence at that age. Uh, so later in life, I would then think, yeah, if I want to do something, I'm just going to do it. And the same thing happened with my business is that I, I just, I didn't know how to do it and therefore I didn't know how not to do it. And, and so I just sort of started this little hobby of mine, of, of running a business, of helping people that sort of grew and it got a bit bigger and I needed some people. And now, you know, I've got 20 people and it's a multi-million pound company and we, we, we get booked for about 2000 events per year. And I just sort of went for it with, with not knowing. And so I think sometimes not knowing can be an advantage if you just think, I don't know what I'm capable of doing. So let me follow my passions and find out. And, and that's, you know, that's been a theme that's run through my life, which I encourage others to pursue too. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. yeah so one thing about being diagnosed later in life with uh, any sort of, you know, neurotypical label like autism or, you know, even like for me, it was ADHD. Uh, I mean, ADHD, I, I was not surprised when I got that diagnosis. And I don't think it has nearly the sort of stigma that autism comes with because I've had a couple of other guests who were diagnosed much later in life. And even from yeah. talking to them, I remember my friend Tara McMullen, I was like, I've met you in person half a dozen times, Tara. I was like, I would never in a million years have guessed that you would be on the spectrum at all. Yeah, uh, and even yeah. from my conversation with you in this moment, I wouldn't have guessed that because I had one guest and and this was really, it was interesting and it was simultaneously disappointing. He was an absolutely brilliant computer scientist uh, and he had so much invaluable advice uh, for parents and uh, we aired the episode and he was so upset with how it turned out that he immediately threatened legal action. So we had to pull it down uh, and wow. I, I just, you know, I, I couldn't believe that. Uh, but my question about this is, what does that do for your identity when you get that label at, yeah. you know, such a later stage in life? And how do you not over identify with it? Because I feel like for so many people that yeah. sort of label, it, what it ends up starting as a diagnosis becomes an identity, I feel like for so many. Yes. Yeah. That, that's, I think that's a really important question. Uh, because, uh, when I first was, was given the diagnosis, um, I, there was a part of me that thought, oh, well, what is, you know, what is this going to mean? What is this change exactly? And that there was suddenly, if I'm honest, there was, there was a moment of me thinking, oh no, I've just been told there's something wrong with me. And then I thought for a second, wait, no, 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 <laughs> this, this doesn't change anything. I'm still the same person I was yesterday. And I like me and my family likes me and I'm proud of what I've done in my life so far. This doesn't actually change anything about me and it doesn't need to define me. Uh, so I always say to people, it's, you know, it's really important that you don't uh, define yourself overly specifically about sort of being one identity. 
uh, it's important to think about all the facets of who you are because otherwise you can get uh, boxed in and, and burned out by sort of staying in one particular facet of, of who you are or one particular skill set and so on. So it's important to think about all the facets of who you are. So I'm a brother. I am a son. I am a father. I'm a business leader. Uh, you know, I am a, an occasional basketball player. Like there's all sorts of things that I could say about myself rather than, uh, just thinking, okay, there's this one thing. And so I think the way that I have, uh, that I've been dealing with it is simply not to have any fear about it, not to aim to hide it and not aim to, you know, talk about it all the time unless it feels like it's relevant. Uh, it, you know, it has been my sort of my path through getting used to it. And I think that, that initially, when I, when I mentioned it here and there, it was also a bit of a surprise for family and for friends and for colleagues and so on. Uh, some of whom said, no, you, you're not, you can't possibly be because I've heard such and such about autism. So that there was like a little bit of a conversation that needed to happen to begin with. Um, but then, you know, I think that, that occasionally it feels useful, uh, to, to let people know, um, where I could say, ah, you know, I, I'm seeing this, pers- this perspective, uh, on things. I'm seeing things differently. And that will be because uh, I'm autistic and therefore, you know, I'm seeing the world differently to you in this, in this situation where we're aiming to resolve something. So occasionally that's valuable for somebody. So, uh, you know, I, I would say to anybody who gets, uh, who is neurodivergent in some way or in any other sort of term, rather than feel that that label defines everything about you, you can say, well, that's an aspect of me. And, you know, I'll talk about it where it's relevant. You know, you saying that made me think of something, you know, I often, funny enough, despite hosting a podcast where I ask questions and, you know, like people are like, mm-hmm. wow, you're a great listener. And people have listened to the show, have set me up on dates with friends of theirs. And like, my friend said, you're a terrible listener. I was like, yeah, that's because I'm playing a character on the show. Uh, that's not me in every moment. <laughs> right. But, but the thing I, I realized was like, in this context, I'm exceptional at it. And in every other context, I'm terrible at it. But one thing I, I realized at a certain point, was I would actually tell a girl before the date started, I was like, just as an FYI, I have ADHD. So if you think I'm not listening, you're wrong. I actually hear every single thing and I'll be able to basically yeah. give you every detail of our conversation in you know, explicit detail, but yeah. just know that. And it was kind of amazing because it was like a good way to disarm that. It's, you know, to, to sort of let that person know up front that, hey, it's not that I'm not listening. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good idea. That, um, yeah, if there's, if there's a situation where you know that it's going to, uh, come up as, as an element of that interaction, that's definitely, uh, worthwhile. Uh, fr- from my perspective, I get, uh, sensory overwhelm in, in certain situations. And so, you know, if I think that that's going to be relevant for the people around me, I might mention, uh, that, uh, you know, how that impacts me. So, uh, for example, if, if I'm in a space that has lots of hard surfaces, Mm-hmm. And several people speak to me at once. It feels like my brain is about to explode. And so I just have to, I have to leave the situation or in advance, I need to let people know that I just need one person at a time <laughs> to be giving their thoughts. Uh, so, oh, yeah. um, you know, how in the world sorry, do you deal ahead. with being on a stage as a keynote speaker then? Oh, it's bliss. Honestly, it is, <laughs> it is bliss, which, which surprises uh, people. Uh, to, to me, when I'm, when I'm teaching, when I'm speaking on stage, uh, you know, even if I'm in front of like a thousand people and there's lights and lasers and, you know, smoke machines and everything, it's, it's fantastic for me because it's purely meditative because it's essentially, I feel like I am a surfer on the ocean. I am in complete control of the situation because 
you know, essentially I guide people to do exactly what I would like them to do for, you know, sometimes I'll do a big talk uh, for people for up to sort of 90 minutes or bigger, longer keynotes I do for like, um, like four hours in front of a large audience. But all times I know, uh, roughly speaking, what they are going to be doing. I'm in control of that environment. I've spoken to the tech team saying, this is where I'd like things to go. This is when I want it to be loud. This is when I want it to be quiet. Uh, this is when I need big, you know, uh, sort of uh, lights or the lights to come down. And so it's, it's a wonderful experience for me because I, it's also great because I, uh, with many of the talks I've given, I've given them so many times. I, I'm in total flow. And mm-hmm. so uh, my mind feels quiet. I can observe the people around me. I know uh, how to then uh, you know, interact with them. It's a very safe space. It's a little bit like where I loved acting when I was a child. So I, um, I, I loved learning a script. And I love being directed because I thought I know exactly what to say and I know where to stand on the stage and how to move because we've been through it. We've done it loads of times. So when the audience shows up and I do it, I, you know, I know what's supposed to happen here. And the, the only different uh, factor in there is that every audience I speak to is different. So mm-hmm. now, you know, the, the, um, the fun of it for me is I talk about it like surfing the ocean. Like I've, I've built up lots of good surfing skills. And then I go out onto the ocean and I ride the waves that are there and it feels meditative in that way. And that's how I feel as a speaker. I go on stage and I, and I ride the energy that is coming back from the audience. Yeah. I remember Stephen Kotler telling me something similar about flow. Uh, you know, he's an expert on flow and we've had him here as a guest many times. And I remember he told me, he said half the time when he's in the middle of a keynote talk, he said, you know, I get done with the talk and I don't even know what I said for an hour. <laughs> Yeah, so, do you know, I mean, I'm, I'm actually the opposite on that where I know exactly what I said and I know exactly what reaction I got from each person um, mm-hmm. afterwards. And I, I rerun it in my, my mind afterwards. I come off the stage. First, I rerun every moment that I feel went well so I can congratulate myself and just consolidate that memory. Then I run every part of the aspect that didn't go as well as I wanted. And I think, what was the inflection I gave on that sentence? Mm. What if I gave a different inflection next time? Would that have a different reaction? And so, I, like I, you know, m- much like yourself, you were saying that you, you know, you remember so much of a um, a, a conversation mm-hmm. because I've, you know, I've done these talks so often. I can just go back in my mind and and go through each piece and think, oh, yeah, the, oh, the the first the first row of the audience on the left hand side didn't seem that engaged when I was going through this section. How could I improve that piece next time? So, yeah, I, I like to sort of recall it and then make it better for the in the next event. Yeah. I, I usually have one person as my focal point. Like I will find the person that I can see as having a positive response to my talk and I will just talk straight at them. <laughs> it's funny. I, th- I think that's a really useful tool, actually, particularly, you know, if people want to build their confidence around speaking, because, you know, with any audience, if it's big enough, uh, the, I mean, I, these are rough statistics, but you can translate them to lots of situations. There is 2% of any audience that will love what you do, no matter what you do. And there's 2% of any audience that will hate what you do, no matter what you do. And it's really the rest of the room that's up for grabs. And Mm so you're always going to see that happy nodder who's like smiling at you, giving you loads of energy. And I remember when I, early in my career, I would be fixating on the one person sat at the back who looked miserable, who was like folding their arms, sitting back and not doing the activities. And I can remember specifically an event I did in Manchester. There's 500 people in the room. And this one guy in the back row, the, the session I was running was voluntary as well. They didn't have to show up for it. And he chose to sit there and furious through the whole thing. And what I had to learn later in life through my career is, you know, that his reaction to me has nothing to do with me. Or maybe, you know, at least 99% of how he's reacting is based on something that's happened to him 
in his life, all the way leading up to the moment at which he came through the door. And I have no idea what that was. So yeah, I always encourage people, look for the happy nodders in the room and then see if you can get the rest of the room that's up for grabs, but never expect to get everybody. Well, so by all accounts, you would be considered an expert in communication. So I have to ask you a question out of morbid curiosity. Do your kids drive you crazy like every other parent? Or are you able to use your professional <laughs> skills on dealing with your kids? So I, I you know, I'd certainly say like any other parent, well, I've got t- two boys. They're currently aged uh, 11 and 8. And th- there's certainly moments where I feel uh, stressed out or worn out by, you know, by a day with them. But I do, I also feel really grateful for having studied communication, for having, you know, understood, I've really invested in personal development as well. I like to go on a lot of um, workshops, uh, seminars, read books and so on that really helped me understand me to have more self-awareness, but also help me understand people. So when there are challenges that are coming up, it's helped me see through what, you know, the surface level of what seems to be happening in the argument or the stress that they're feeling to get to a place where I can help soothe them. Um, and I, I'm not able to do this every time, but many times able, able to soothe them based on a technique or a strategy that I, I've seen someone use in the past or I've used in different situations that then allows them uh, to, to be calm. And also other situations where I'm able to you know, help problem solve with them, help them communicate with each other. So I, I certainly feel that that's been valuable, but, but it's, uh, it's not bulletproof. There's <laughs> other situations where, you know, they've had too much sugar that day and uh, they're exhausted and they're throwing things at each other. <laughs> and it just, you know, you just have to do the best you can. Yeah, it, it's funny because every time I have uh, podcast guests who have been raised by therapists, I always ask them, are you immune to all the bullshit that all the rest of us go, go to therapy to fix? And they're like, no, in fact, it's worse because I have parents who are therapists. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. I can imagine that. Yeah. Well, let's get into the book. Uh, and you open the book by saying lifting your impact on people around the world around with you begins with a lifted mindset that's firmly grounded in your core values. Your values are your inner guiding compass that shows you the way to your true north. And you say, if you ignore them, you could end up working for years towards goals that feel meaningless on completion, wondering what came of your life and the person that you used to be. And you yeah. tie this into the idea of external validation and you know, I come from a culture where every single person I think on some level is got this perpetual sense that it's not, they're never enough. You know, I mean, yeah. in, in the Indian culture is much like the school district you went to. It's just that, you know, perpetuates for our entire lives. It's like, Hey, you know, so-and-so's son got a PhD. I'm like, great. Yeah. Thank you for letting me know. Um, <laughs> so talk to me about that because I think that so many of us like have to have some sort of wake up call to even consider values. Like if you had asked me about values when I was 20, I would have written it off as this just sounds like a bunch of nonsense. What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's it's interesting that you mentioned Indian culture there. So I'll give you the example of uh, my wife is a doctor and, you know, in, in the UK, there are a lot of people in the, we have a lot of uh, Indian people uh, in the UK or Indian heritage who who trained to be doctors. And so uh, she's been surrounded by uh, people from that background. And what we've noticed, though, is that several of her friends, they, they sort of reached a stage where they, you know, they qualified and then they sort of made their way up the career ladder a little bit to the, to the, to the job at which they thought their family would be proud. And the, the place where they thought, well, I'm going to, you know, I'll be in a place of success and, and fulfillment here. And then they've 
pulled their head up and thought, I actually don't, I don't know why I'm here. Like why, I feel like I put my ladder against the wrong wall and I've climbed up that ladder. And now that I'm at the top of the ladder, I think, why did I, why did I climb this, this side? I should have put the ladder up against a different wall. I, I don't know why, why I went this way. And so I think that's really important for anybody to think, to really stop and think, why do you have the goals that you have? Because I think, you know, with social media these days, we are shown, you know, people who are um, airbrushed and, uh, you know, driving fancy cars and often beautiful locations and seemingly never doing a job uh, and, and always being calm with their children and so on. And, uh, you know, managed to get in perfect family photos. And so, so sometimes we think, oh, that maybe that's what happiness is. Maybe that's what I need to do. And then we end up doing it and thinking, I still don't feel like I've, like I've done it. And so this is why I care so much about values. And, and I have to say it was a huge gift that I happened to get about going to live in this monastery when I was, when I was a kid, because I started thinking about values really early on. And, you know, what, what happened is that when I was at school, uh, there was a guy who'd been, at our school a couple of years before, and he came back and he gave us a talk. And he said, like, I know you're all thinking about going to university, but um, I just want to encourage you to see if any of you might want to take a year off to go and do something good in the world. And he'd explained how he'd been to Kathmandu to go and work in an orphanage. And he explained the experience. And I thought, that sounds amazing. That's so much better than just going to university. And so, you know, I, I ended up going to then apply to see if there was a place that I could get somewhere interesting ended up at this monastery. And what was fantastic about it, it was up in the foothills. It was near Darjeeling, just quite high up. And uh, they had a flat roof at the top of the monastery. And on evenings when I couldn't uh, sleep, I'd go up to the roof of the monastery. I'd take the rug from my room and lay it down this concrete roof and, and lay there and just stare at the stars. And you could see stars like you've never seen before because there's no pollution around, a beautiful sky. And there's also many, many power cuts in the town. So it's almost like a blackout all around you just staring at these stars. And I would think about where I wanted my life to go and what kind of person I wanted to be. And I'd write loads of things out in my journal to really think about that in a place where I had no friends from home. I had no family, nobody pressuring me with any ideas. This was before the internet, before social media. So I could really clear my mind and think, who do I want to uh, become? And so I came back feeling pretty clear about the kind of person that I wanted to be, which, is, which has helped guide me uh, since then. And, you know, I've been, I've been feeling sort of uh, saddened by some people who I've seen who they, uh, they, they find that they're just, they're just exhausted because they're, they're not really sure who they want to be. And they're bouncing between trying to please various people around them. Uh, you know, it, it could be in their, their personal relationships, could be their friendship groups, could be the people they work with. And uh, th then they have this moment of crisis of thinking, who, well, what am I doing this for? Like, like, can, I, can I escape what I'm doing? And in some cases, I've heard some people say, I want to change career, but I can't right now because if I did what I really want to do, then we couldn't pay the mortgage and I couldn't feed my kids. So I'm just going to keep on doing it for now and keep on going. So this is why I'm always so keen that people figure out uh, what those values are. And they're also, they've also been important to me. Like it's not something I figured out when I was 19 and never had to look at it again. Yeah. This was really important to me over the last five years in particular, which is why I put a big focus on this in the book is that, you know, I went through a lot of stress, a lot of challenges, uh, challenges in my family life, challenges in my business. You know, we went through the pandemic that shut down everything that we did. And I had people on the payroll concerned about whether or not they were going to be able to, uh, to, to, to keep having a job. And so I really had to make careful decisions as a business leader there. And I would meditate every day. 
and really focus in on what other values that I'm going to make decisions by such that I will always be proud of what I did in this situation. And, it, you know, with a lot of people feeling stressed, uh, going out of their mind with uh, worry about fit various situations, I came back to those values daily and found that valuable. And I also found that clients uh, were coming to us saying, look, we know you normally teach us about communication, but we're stressed and we don't know where we're heading and we need some help. And so I spend, I spend a lot more time working on mindset and values with, uh, with different organizations too. So, so that's why I find it's so important. Yeah, I think the, the, the one thing that I have found is even through the past 10 years, like my values have changed throughout my life as well. Yeah. Like I yeah. realize values are not static. Yes. Yes. So, so true. And I say to people that you probably have, it's somewhere, I think, in a region of like 30 to 40 values that might be guiding your life at, at any given time, depending on who you speak to, who you, who you ask. Um, but there, that can be overwhelming. If you woke up every morning and thought, I'm going to live by these 40 values today, it's really difficult. So instead, I encourage people to think about their top three. And that top three, as you just mentioned there, um, that top three will change. Uh, from time to time. And you might need to reprioritize uh, which values are important to you. So, uh, you know, to give an example from, from my life, uh, you know, one of my uh, top values had always been about, uh, centered around giving. And it was specifically, uh, you know, giving to charities, giving of myself, generosity, and all these things. And uh, we, we came to the point of the, uh, the pandemic. We also had a situation with a major legal case that came up because there were some people who left our company and were then uh, aiming to steal our clients and and do everything they could to try and tear our company down. And uh, I thought, I need to really think carefully about what values are guiding me every day so that I do the right thing by my company now and help us thrive, not just survive, but really help us thrive and protect the people in my company. I thought, I need a value that's going to be all about protection. What is that value going to be? And uh, the word that I came up with for that was silverback where I thought I need to be the silverback for my team, where I am focused every day on protecting my team and providing for my team. And I will do everything I can to make sure that they are safe, that they have uh, they have work in their diaries, that they've got money in their pocket at the end uh, of each month. And that needs to be my primary focus. So it doesn't mean that I sort of stop being giving or generous or working with charities and so on. It just, it just had to go down to number four on the priority list. And uh, silverback went up to second place and first yeah. place has always been to be a good father to uh, to my kids which has many different ramifications about why that's important so so realigning which values need to guide you right now uh, is critical and then you can if you've only got three you can then be focusing on them as soon as you wake up or before an important meeting before a really challenging stressful situation just think i'm going in knowing this is who i am and this will guide my behavior so that i'm proud of myself even if we don't achieve the goal uh, you can have that to uh, to guide you a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile. slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, let's talk about translating uh, values into vision and what you call a vision story, because you say when you lift your vision, you can create a future goal that will motivate you and others, giving your daily life greater meaning as you venture towards your goal. You may have set goals in the past and perhaps have felt disappointed when they were not achieved. And you say by understanding how to create your vision story through vision, the vision creation process, you can use it to subconsciously drive yourself toward goals. And, yeah. you know, I, I think that with all the various books that have been written about this idea of vision, you know, kind of like Simon Sinek's start why it all is kind of really vague at moments or it feels nebulous. And I realize that's because it's not one of those things that you just wake up and you're like, okay, this is my purpose. You know, this is my why. Like right. I realized yeah. it took me five <laughs> years. I was really fortunate that Simon Sinek pointed it out to me you know, when he interviewed me, he's like, your why is that you're obsessed with people who are good at unusual things. And I thought to myself, I'm like, that's great, Simon. What the hell am I supposed to do with that? And <laughs> that was 13 years ago. And then when I look back at all the people I've interviewed, I thought, holy shit, he was absolutely right. Wow. That's um, fantastic. But talk to me about connecting vision to values, because I feel like vision yeah. really often becomes just an exercise in mental masturbation for so many people where they you know, create vision boards and stare at them. And, and at the end of the, the year, they create another vision board and everything is still the same. It just becomes this yeah, sort of exactly. new age bullshit exercise. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, 
I certainly say that a lot of people who, first of all, who set goals, they never achieve them. Like people make a New Year's resolution, this year I'm going to run the marathon or something. And then they look at it and next, next year, it comes next January 1st, they go, oh yeah, what happened about that? So, so they sort of set a goal and it had no connection to anything. It was just sort of something that they would write down or, um, you know, dream up on a drunken New Year's Eve. But also that when other people think about, uh, you know, what is my vision, um, to talk about what we were just uh, mentioning, if you haven't focused on your values first and really, truly got connected with what you deeply care about, who, what kind of person you want to be, if you haven't done that first, and you, you write down your goals, inevitably, those are going to be goals that are influenced by what other people think you should be doing, what you've heard about in the media, um, how your mind has been primed to believe that you should have certain goals on there, like a certain level of health and a certain level of wealth and whatever else you think should be uh, on that. And so, you know, you create a vision board of all these pictures of that's, that's what their dream life is. I've seen Disney movies and people are really happy at the end of the movie. If they have that house and it's got the white picket fence and there's lots of people nicely dressed and there's a wedding, there's definitely always a wedding. So that stuff's going on my vision board and that's where I have to be. And then, you know, people go through that and then suddenly think, why am I not happy? I've done those things. It was in the Disney movie. Why is it not there? So, so this is how I start that vision process differently. And it's something that I've, I've done for you know, more than two decades myself. I've gradually refined it over that time and done it with clients as well. You have to start with your values because your values is like your true North compass. And it says, this is the kind of person I want to be. And therefore it points to your true North. Now, all you have to do then when you start to create your vision story is you think inevitably, if I, if this is pointing me to my true North, if I keep heading in that direction for the next five years, where does that take me? What kind of person am I going to be? Uh, what sort of journey am I going to go on? And what would that lead me to? What sort of legacy would I love to leave behind me if I truly am the embodiment of these values and live a life that I'm proud of uh, being guided by them? And so that can then give you a very, very different approach to, uh, to, to goal setting. And it comes from within rather than from sort of getting too uh, cognitive about it and so on. It's truly coming from what you, what you care about. And so the other parts of the vision story process is that sometimes people will approach goal setting. They're told, just dream, just dream big. And they sort of, they come up with a dream. And sometimes they're even told to come up with an action plan, but they think that sounds nice. I'll do it one day. And then the next day they, they get up and they think, oh, I'll just not today. I'll just have a lion today and eat two pizzas and then play some video games and go to bed because they're not actually connected to it. They don't see that it's a journey. So the different elements that I've put in there that have worked over the years is that you start off with, where are you right now? You focused on your values. You then think, where am I today, genuinely? And how is that in alignment with my values? And you start to realize, actually, there's parts of my life that are not aligning here. And the more that you focus on them, you can see, well, what is the challenge about that? Why am I concerned about it? And if it doesn't seem like a big deal right now, if nothing changes about my life, where would I end up in five years time and 10 years time? And how would that impact me? And how would that feel if these are my values and I, I head in this direction that's out of alignment with my values? How far would I have to go down that road for it to become a crisis? And so, you know, this is done in classic storytelling to get people engaged in a movie or in a good book. They do this at the beginning of every story. They say, here's this person who cares about these things. Right now they have this challenge. And oh, by the way, if they keep going in this direction, they're going to be kicked out of where they live and they'll never see their children again. Like that's sort of a basic setup for a story. We think, oh no, what are they going to do about it? So if you do that for your own life, you can suddenly get really focused on why you care about changing things to stay in alignment with your values. 
And then you can dream up that bigger future, which people are maybe more familiar with of where would I love to be, but put it in alignment with your values. And then the, the next part is to build the journey. And the journey, and people have heard this so many times, but I always say to people, the journey is the point. That it, you know, whether or not you end up with a certain amount of money or a, you know, a house that's a certain amount of square foot, that's not really the point. The point is, where are you now? What are your values? Where would you love to be in alignment with your values? And then you start going on that journey and you become a person that you are really proud of. And no one can ever take that away from you. A pandemic can't take that from you. Who gets voted president of the next election? That can't be taken from you because you've been on this uh, aligned value journey uh, that you've gone on um, and that you can take steps on every single day. So, uh, you know, I've really been aiming to take the the premise of the best pieces that I've seen that work elsewhere, but also fill in the pieces that I'd never seen somewhere else to, to put something into practice that I knew would work. And the way that I do this, I actually do it all the time. So I have um, I have these yellow notepads that I love using. It's like a legal notepad. I've used them for years. And whenever I open up a new notepad, I write that story. I put down my values. What are my current challenges? If I, if I keep going in this direction, what does that inevitably lead me to? Where would I love to be? What does that journey look like? Let me break down that journey into steps that I can start moving forwards on. And who will I become on this journey? And so I just do that. And you can, you can get it done in the space of like 10 minutes. It doesn't have to take a long time. And then suddenly you're set up with a meaningful purposeful day and you feel better about yourself as you sort of make progress through your days and your weeks. Yeah. Well, so in the interest of time, I mean, there, there's so much here in this book. So what I would like to do is go through these six archetypes for growth that you talk about and then yeah. relate them to how they relate to, you know, the, the idea of lifting your storytelling, lifting your stakeholders, lifting your message, lifting your presence and lifting your performance. Yeah. Yeah, great. So, uh, so I developed something that I'm, I'm super proud of in the book, uh, which is all about, uh, these archetypes. So there are, there are storytelling archetypes. And, uh, you know, I believe Carl Jung was the first person to really, um, popularize the phrase, uh, archetypes, but it's been around for a long time. And so he said that there are limitless archetypes and an archetype is essentially a set of behaviors, uh, that, uh, that people may have, uh, that you can see um, reflected by other people throughout time. You could see them in like, you know, from, from sort of cave drawings to, uh, you know, ancient Greek, uh, mythology and various other stories and actions that have happened throughout history, uh, in between. And, uh, so I wanted to pin down a series of archetypes. And the reason for this is that I see a lot of people feeling boxed in. We've talked about, you know, labels, uh, already, uh, on this conversation, but I see a lot of people getting boxed in. And, uh, feeling burned out because, you know, sometimes they go through a personality profiling system that says you're a red or you're a triangle. And that means that you'll always be this way and you'll never be that way. And that's never really worked for me. I, I like self-awareness of thinking, okay, that's how I am right now. But I've never thought, well, that's who I am forever. Uh, cause I don't, I don't think that matches human beings. And so I developed this archetype system to say to people, look, where are you right now in your behaviors? And, what part of yourself are you forgetting that you could draw upon, that you could lean into, that might actually help you move forward in your life? And so I created these six archetypes that everyone can embody. And, uh, you know, you don't get stuck with one. There might be one that you prefer right now, but there's six you can embody. And if you're having a real challenge in your life right now, it's probably because you are using the wrong archetype of behaviors day to day. It's just not matching your, it's not serving you. 
Uh, there's no sort of good one or bad one. It's just not serving you right now. And so these six different archetypes, uh, to go through these each in turn. If we start off with uh, the, the servant. So the servant archetype is the one that wants, the person who wants to be the wind beneath somebody else's wings. Uh, so, it, you know, that may resonate with people if they feel very much, you know, heart-led, wanting to do the right thing by others, helping to uh, support people, lift them up, do things that will make them feel better or elevate their success and so on. Now, it's, it's a really powerful uh, archetype to have. But if you get stuck there, and I've seen this sometimes, we talked about parenting earlier. I've seen this multiple times with parents who they get to the point where they feel put upon and they don't feel able to escape the servant role because everyone around them expects them to do so much for them that they get to the point of feeling like um, a martyr and feeling like I'm always having to do this. I'm always having to be in this servant mode of do things for others, do things for others. What about me? And so they get worn out from that piece. So it's important to be able to shift and change and find another archetype you can lean into. There's then the sage archetype. And I should say also these archetypes, they're built on Eastern wisdom as well as Western uh, wisdom. And I've mixed the, those two together. So the sage archetype, which is often you know associated with the element of earth as well, uh, the sage is more the calm and wise, methodical person who approaches uh, the people around them aiming to be a mentor towards them, uh, helping to give them calm and solid advice, often reflects on what's happened in the past and will give their perspective uh, from there. And the challenge with being the sage too much is that you could be too stuck in the past, uh, that you're not able to be creative in the moment and think about uh, new ideas. Then the the next piece is the sovereigns, the sovereign archetype. Uh, often in different archetype systems, this sometimes shows up as the king or the queen but I wanted something that was gender neutral for everyone to relate to. So I've called it the sovereign. And this uh, you know, connects with the element of metal as well for some people who are interested in the elements and the archetype systems around those. Now, the sovereign is great at decision-making, planning, process, which is really important for you know, running a business or for um, having strategies in different aspects of your life. But again, if you get stuck there, if you're too, spending too much time there, then you're going to end up being too black and white. And people will say, you're so stuck. You're so, ri so rigid. You need to loosen up a little bit. Uh, or, or you could find that you find just you're being put upon. Whenever a decision needs to be made around you, people come to you and you get decision fatigue and you get fed up with that situation. So it's useful, but uh, also it can feel um, that you can get worn down in that situation. The next three are you've got the shield. And the shield is the person who is there to protect and provide. This taps into what I was speaking about earlier of uh, using my value of silverback. So, uh, but the shield again, aim to be a gender neutral piece. This is where, uh, this is connecting with the element of wood. And it's that sense of strength, like a st big, strong tree that has stood the test of time and that provides for others, provides shelter, provides food for others. Uh, and if you spend too much time there, uh, sometimes people resist being the shield because the shield, if it gets stressed and worn out, can become aggressive uh, towards others. So you've got to make sure that you're not pushing too far in that direction. The last two, you've got showtime, uh, which is when people are in the spotlight, being creative, being expressive uh, in what they're doing. And again, there are some people who, who shy away from that. They say, no, 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 I could never do that. And that I, I used to do that. I used to be, I remember when I was a kid, I was much more sort of servant mode uh, and so on. And then I realized that there was this aspect of me that when I got on stage, I became more vibrant and more alive. And I quite liked that. And I thought, oh, that's intriguing. That's part of me. 
so I encourage people to to venture forward into that. The negative side of the showtime is the person who always wants to be the center of attention. So you've got to watch that piece. And lastly, you have the sprite. And the sprite piece is there. Uh, it's connected with the element of water. And it's there as the playful part of ourselves that sometimes when we get past you know, childhood, we suddenly think, well, I'm going to grow up now. I can't be playful anymore. But to be childlike, to be playful is super important part of ourselves. And if we feel worn down and burn out, then certainly the sprite aspect of us could be missing. And it could help you sometimes actually make better decisions and be more productive. So it's key for people to think, if they're listening to this now, think, which one of those am I being most of the time? And which one of those am I being least of the time? And often when you look at really compelling stories, you know, fiction stories or real life stories, you see someone goes on a journey from one archetype towards the other. And like I said earlier, you set a vision for where you want to be in your life. Often the journey is the point. The journey could be that right now you're very sprightly and you need to be more sovereign in your life. And that is the journey for you to be heading on in order to have the full realization uh, of your values. So I hope that's been clear for people to, uh, to understand those archetypes. Yeah. Well, so let's tie that together. And, you know, I kind of distilled this into now thinking about it as sort of the four pillars of impact, which are storytelling, stakeholders, message, uh, presence, and performance. So yeah. how do we tie those archetypes into each one of these? Yes. So, uh, so, so for example, sometimes uh, when I'm teaching things like uh, body language, people might say to me, well, what's good body language and bad body language? And I always say, look, it's, it's a language like any other language, like French, for example. There's no bad words and good words. It just depends on the impact that you want people to have. So let's say that you are, the impact you want to have is more like a sage. Well, there's different body language that the sage would embody versus the sovereign. So how you show up, you've got to decide, what are my values? What's my vision? What sort of archetype is going to help me? And then you think, okay, what body language is going to be useful in this next situation that allows me to connect with people in a way that will be a positive influence because today I've decided to be more showtime or more servant and so on. Uh, storytelling as well is something that ties into, we've talked about the vision statement and, and seeing ourselves in those stories. You've also got to think, if I'm telling a story, if I'm telling a story to my team to pitch to clients, um, how do I show up as the storyteller? Do I want to show up as a shield sort of storyteller? Because, you know, let, let's say your company's going through all sorts of challenges. If you show up as a sprite storyteller, that's probably not where they want to be because they might be thinking you're not taking this seriously enough. So they might need you to show up as the shield when you tell those stories. And you also want to think about this when you're connecting with your stakeholders, whoever they may be. That could be your family. That could be your friends. Uh, you know, depending on what you're talking about in your life, things that you want to achieve. Those stakeholders are people who are going to uh, influence or potentially support your ideas and where you're heading with things. So you might want to think about when you're showing up for key conversations, which part of you needs to be there in order to build those relationships. Would they like a little bit more showtime from you or would they actually like a little bit more sage? You know, is it helpful in those relationships if you show up a bit more sovereign-like saying, look, decisions need to be made here uh, or do you need to be something else? So you can connect yourself with all those other elements uh, of the book by first of all decided this is the archetype I'm going to be. And then you head into how you influence people through all those different aspects, storytelling, uh, your body language, your voice, questioning skills, and so on. So being the version of you that needs to show up and put those techniques into action. Wow. Well, you know, I think there's, you know, one other thing that really struck me, you know, throughout the book was 
you know, this idea of how much we seek external validation. And that's such a slippery slope, I feel like. And yet, you know, I think every one of us understands that. And I wonder, you know, sort of how we'd stop doing that. Because I think there's no point, like I realized at a certain point that like every one of us always wants our parents to be proud of what we've done. We don't want them to be disappointed. I remember talking to Danielle Laporte about this. She's like, that's not something you ever really outgrow. Um, and she's yeah. like, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that when it basically becomes the driving force, that's when it, it becomes problematic. Yes. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and uh, it, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with other people being proud of what you're doing, but if you're doing it to make them proud, then, you know, ultimately you're going to feel hollow and it could be that you do the thing that you think will make them proud and then they're not, and then you've lost everything. You think... I put years into this. I thought that's what you wanted me to do. And now you're saying you didn't, and I didn't like going through the process. So, you know, it's certainly okay to make people proud. And, you know, sometimes our parents being very well-intentioned, there may be certain values they meant to instill in us. And we thought that meant, oh, you're saying that I have to be a doctor, but actually what they meant is hard work and providing for your family. Like maybe that's the value they were hoping you would pick up from it along the way. Or, you know, maybe they actually did say you should go and be a doctor, but what they mean underneath that, even if you don't do the thing that they, you thought they wanted you to do, you can sometimes think, is there a value underneath that that they really care about? That if I'm living out that value and not doing the thing that's, um, that they thought was specifically was the end goal, where they would still be able to feel proud. Uh, and so, you know, you can approach it from those pieces too, but, but always going from that place of internal validation. We, we love it when we see someone who seems really authentic. They feel really aligned. You think, wow, you're just, you're, you're living life the way you believe it should be lived. That's something that we can really aspire to be in ourselves. So I'd encourage people towards that. Well, there are two tactical pieces of this that I wanted to finish up with. Um, you talk about something called the pro system, which really struck me. And I love it when people are able to organize complex ideas in acronyms and frameworks mm -hmm. because it makes it so much easier to understand. Uh, but you say the pro system allows you to take any idea and speak to any group of people, influencing their actions and lifting them to new levels of success, motivation, and inspiration. So can you walk yeah. us through the elements of the pro system? Give us the, the brief overview. Sure. So uh, the pro system was, like you say, my, my way of organizing a lot of complex ideas into something simple that everyone can use. And, uh, you know, if you think about uh, going back to the 1950s when Joseph Campbell was around and he was uh, a researcher, a mythologist, and he put together the hero's journey that a lot of people have probably uh, heard about. The hero's journey, the challenge with it, not only is the hero with a thousand faces, his book, quite a complex book to read. It's quite challenging. Um, but it's also, it ends up with this hero's journey that is 17 stages. And I realized with working with people day to day that it's not realistic to put that into practice to, you know, take complex information and put it into this 17 stages in order to write an effective email or to, you know, put together a good document or so on. So I thought, well, I need a simpler system. Uh, so I came up with this pro system that allows people to put together the essential elements that the hero's journey would cover, but in a way that you can use it. You can actually use it. It's a similar journey to creating your vision story, but you can use this to create a, um, a you know, a, a three paragraph email. You can use it to create a, you know, 20 minute conversation. You can use it to create a, a three hour meeting or, or a two day training session. In fact, just by following these five pros. Uh, and so, uh, to go through them simply, you start off with the problem, which is the challenge, which I talked about earlier with the vision story. It's that piece of where am I right now and what's concerning about it? 
and think about it from whoever you're speaking to, what concerns do they have? What, what challenge do they have right now, now in their life? That if you spoke about it in a meeting, they, their eyes would light up and say, yes, let's talk about this. So you start off with the problem, uh, as you would in any good story. There's, you know, there's, uh, some sort of uh, beast that comes to attack the village uh, somewhere at the beginning of the movie. And you go, Oh, the story started. Here we go. Uh, the next piece is the promise. And this is where you start to think, well, where, where would I like to get to? So if you're speaking to someone, you could say something along the lines of, what if we could have a quick conversation now that would help us move forward on this project where we could save money, we could save time and do it in a way that improves uh, your team's reputation? How would that be? So that's setting up the promise from a sort of a, a meeting perspective. But it's something that also happens in all great stories. Let's say that, you know, you're watching a movie and uh, a dragon comes in and eats everyone in the village and they're all dead and the dragon walks away. It, like You're not going to watch the rest of that movie. Instead, what you watch is you see the two or three people who escape the dragon's attack and they go up on the hill and they realize there's another village on the other side of a far mountain. And that village is a place that is safe from dragon attack. And you realize that's what the movie is going to be about, is getting them from where they are to where they want to be. And so you can do that in just everyday conversations. 30 second, uh, you know, um, uh, adverts, commercials, they do this as well, where they say, do you have this challenge? Would you love to? Um, be free of that challenge and have this in the future. So they do that in the space of about, you know, five or 10 seconds. Uh, and so that's the second piece of the promise. Then the next two pieces are more about logic, which is process and proof. So you can talk in a conversation or an email or a document or a story about, you know, how do we get from the problem to the promise? What is the process of getting from A to B going to look like? And what proof, what evidence do I have that that's going to work? And uh, that's where you spend most of the time in a conversation or in a meeting or a discussion, that sort of thing. And then the last step around this is the prompt, the prompt. And this is the piece that most people forget and most people get wrong, which is where at the end of meetings, people often you know, talk about something uh, where they say, hey, everybody, uh, based on what I've said, could we just uh, agree that we're going to invest $17 million into this project for the next six years, which will involve 25 people? Can you just agree to that? And people say, no, I can't agree to that. That's too big. Let's take this offline and they never talk about it again. So the idea of the prompt is at the end of an email or a meeting or a conversation is that you give someone uh, one simple action or you agree one action together. Like, like based on our conversation, should we do this one thing right now? And that one thing is the key to an effective uh, discussion or interaction with someone because you actually take the step forwards rather than thinking, well, that was good. Everything's resolved. And then next week you have the same problems coming up. You actually take an action immediately together that moves you forwards towards where you want to be uh, with that uh, that promise somewhere in the future. So, so that in essence is those five pieces that I put together for people, and I've coached people to do everything from write more effective emails. There was one team that said that, that this had reduced the time that it takes them on emails day to day by about thirty percent because I trained fifty people on their team to do this for each other. Every email was using this pro system. I've used it all the way up to help. Uh, people win deals worth hundreds of millions where they are putting this pro structure into practice in how they pitch to, to elevate what they're saying over and above what other people are doing. I mean, literally my first thought was, wow, I should restructure my podcast ad reads based on what you just said. <laughs> okay, right. Um, so let's finish with this one last piece. Uh, and this really struck me. I'd never thought about this before where you're talking about sort of how our gestures create a perception of time. And you say the most effective movement you can do on the stage oh, yeah. is to move from the past, you're right, and the audience is left to the future. 
your left and the audience's right. And by using the stage this way, you've walked your audience from their past to the present, finally to their future. You've connected more deeply with their minds through embracing the way that they see time. Expand on that for me, because like as somebody who has done my fair share of keynotes, that just made me think, wow, that really could have a, a potent impact on the audience. Yeah, it's so powerful when you do it. And it's, it's very rare that, that, uh, that you find a speaker who knows about it. And when they do it, it's just so brilliant. It, it takes people to the next level of storytelling. I remember years ago when I first found out about this technique, I saw a speaker on stage and I was just mesmerized by how fluidly he managed to move to the audience's left when he talked about the past. He moved to the audience's right as he talked about the future. And, and he was so engaging as a result because everything he was doing physically was congruent with how our brain sees time taking place. So uh, to give people a, an idea around this, if they're listening to the podcast, if you imagine a graph on a screen uh, in front of you and you imagine zero being on one side of the screen and 100 being on the other side of the screen, which side is the zero on? Or for example, if you have January on one side and December on one side, which side is January on? We know that... Uh, when you have a graph that you see time where you see on the left, you see the past and on the right, you see the future. And, you know, in, in different parts of the world, people read uh, from right to left or down a page and so on. But graphs are done the same way. We see time as human beings going from uh, the past on our left to the future on our right. Uh, so when we're watching a stage or looking at a screen, if you if you sit still and you visualize, you might see the past behind you and the future in front of you. Like there's there's lots of variations around that, and people don't need to change that. But you as a speaker, if you're trying to take people from the past to the future and give them a story, that's how you can do it. So so just imagine this: if you if you're not aware of doing uh, of this, then most likely what you're doing, you're already doing it, but you're just doing it the wrong way around. So. You're most likely, if, if you're a speaker and you're thinking about, uh, you know, what you're saying to an audience, you might be gesturing to your left or walking to your left, the audience is right, when you're talking about the past, because that'll just feel instinctive, because that's how you, as a speaker, see time. And then when you think about the future, you might instinctively, without even knowing it, move to your right and the audience's left as you talk about the future. The challenge is for them, it, it gets uh, confusing, because they think, well, hang on a second, that's They'll, they won't think it consciously, but subconsciously, they'll think that's going against how I see time. And this is now confusing me, particularly if you have graphs up on the, uh, the screen behind you that are going in the other direction to where you're indicating or gesturing. So uh, to bring this down to a simple level, you don't have to be on a big stage to use this. When you're speaking to someone, and uh, let's imagine you're trying to resolve an issue with them and imagine that you're facing them, then ideally what you should do is use your right hand to indicate anything that is a challenge and anything that happened in the past. And then you use your left hand to indicate anything that is in the future and uh, anything that you're aiming to achieve uh, out of uh, this meeting. And the joy of that is that they will, they will feel on a subconscious level very grateful for the fact that you are congruently indicating in which direction the meeting is moving. And so off to your right, with your right hand, you can say, look, I know that we've had some challenges in the past. And I'd really like to put those challenges behind us and move away from those. Let's just talk about what those challenges have been up until today. And you're indicating them in visually in their past so they can mentally take a break from them. And then you visually indicate with your left hand, I'd love to create a better future in the way that we work together. And let's talk about what that might be. What does that look like for you? And you just gesture off to your left. So you're indicating to their future and they subconsciously are moving with you towards imagination, dreaming up where things can go and so on. So. 
I, I really love coaching people through this. When, when I have a group uh, running a workshop face-to-face, sales teams love this, obviously, but leaders and managers really love this as well because they suddenly see how they can elevate their game and be much more engaging in front of a large group or even just in front of one person by gesturing the way that people see time. Mm. Beautiful. Well, uh, this has been really incredible. I mean, you've just packed it with so many practical and thought-provoking insights. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, to make somebody really unmistakable, uh, I think that, um, you know, building on the conversation that we, we've had around uh, value, values, uh, that there's only really one way to live uh, an engaging life, which is to truly, truly be you, not the version of you that other people expect you to be, or that you think that you're supposed to be, but to be truly unmistakable, uh, then you've got to live totally in accordance with your values, knowing that your values are different to everybody's and that's okay. And so when you live in alignment with those, then the way that you create things is going to be completely different and be really exciting and engaging for other people. So uh, that's, that's what I would always encourage people to do is just think very deeply and carefully about the kind of person that you want to become and live in alignment with that. And then you'll be unmistakably you. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your wisdom and your insights and stories with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything that you're up to? Great. So there's a couple of places. If people are interested in uh, getting some workshops for their team, uh, then they can go to ukbodytalk.com and find out more about the workshops that we provide. Um, we travel worldwide and do virtual events from there. If people want to know more about the book, uh, Lift Your Impact is av- available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any, any way you want to get it. Just look for Lift Your Impact, Richard Newman. Uh, but I can also give people uh, the first 25 pages of the book for free. So if you go to liftyourimpact.com forward slash the book, and you scroll down that page right at the bottom, there's a form you can fill out, contact form. You tick the box to get a free 25 pages and uh, we'll send that across to you. And that, that goes really deeply into the values piece we've talked about uh, on this session. And lastly, people can find me on Instagram at Richard Newman Speaks. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The four keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that. 
and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.